From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, former New York Times journalist and video producer Nilu Tabrizi joins us to talk about her latest investigation into how security forces in Iran have used ambulances to infiltrate protests and detain protesters. But first, we speak with Aran Keshavarzian, an associate professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University, about intense criticism of Iran's soccer team for not openly supporting the anti-government uprising in Iran. Here is Shahram Agamir's interview with Professor Keshavarzian. On November 21st, as security forces were firing live ammunition on protesters in Iran, in an apparent sign of solidarity with protesters and in an act of defiance against the state, members of Iran's national team stayed stone-faced and refused to sing the national anthem when it was played at the stadium before their opening World Cup match against England. The entire team had also created a circle of unity on the pitch, with the players wearing black wristbands to remember the fallen in an uprising that has seen hundreds of thousands of Iranian women and men taken to streets in 155 cities back home. And the uprising is now in its third month. In referring to Iran's national team, UK Daily Guardian editorial writes, a team's silence speaks volumes. What was the significance of that initial act of not singing the anthem, which was not repeated in the subsequent matches against Wales and the US? Yes, that's a very good question, Shahram. I think its significance is produced by a number of different factors. On the one hand, we have to think a little bit about the context. And I think for the Guardian writers, this may have mattered a lot. In the past few days, or frankly, past few weeks, FIFA has been quite adamant that it did not want any what it called political actions and claim making to pollute their pristine project of the World Cup. For instance, it explicitly threatened captains of European teams with punishment if they wore a captain's armband with the rainbow colors representing solidarity and advocacy for LGBT plus rights. The Belgium national team has a jersey that has simply the word love stitched inside of the shirt. And FIFA has now demanded that the Belgian team cover up the word love from there inside of their shirt, I guess, with the assumption that the expression of support for love is somehow associated with support for LGBT plus rights. Quite crazy sorts of behavior on the part of FIFA. But it is in this context, and, and I should add that Unfortunately, in my view, all of these European teams have cowed to this pressure. For instance, England's captain, Harry Kane, did not wear the rainbow armband that he had earlier stated that he would wear in support of freedom of expression and so forth. So most of the European teams and federations, in fact, succumbed to the pressure from FIFA and the Qatari World Cup organizers. Now, the Iranian players not only had to confront this kind of larger blanket pressure by FIFA that politics should be kept out of politics, but also we have to acknowledge that when the team arrived in Qatar, they arrived with clearly a whole host of members from the Iranian security apparatus. 
who, as in other events and tournaments and so forth, are basically sent along with athletes, football and other athletes, to put pressure on the athletes, to monitor them, hoping that these athletes would tow the establishment's official political positions. So the players clearly were under enormous amount of pressure indirectly. They probably felt their families' lives and careers and so forth were also under pressure back home. Now, in the lead up to the game, the players were actually very quiet and circumspect about what they would do. In most of the instances when reporters try to elicit a reaction to them to get them to come out and state publicly that they how they felt about the protest, state their sympathies for Iranians, their criticisms of the regime's handling and violence towards the protesters. In nearly all of these cases, the players, in a sense, avoided making any public statements and actually, in a few cases, directly criticized the reporters for them even asking the question. There is one important exception, and that's Esan Hajsafi, a very experienced player and a team captain who, on the eve of the game, made a quite an emotional statement expressing his sympathies with Iranian people, acknowledging the very tense and sad situation in Iran, and made a strong claim that the team and all the players are siding with the people, and he hoped that the team could bring joy and happiness to the people of Iran. But he was very much the exception. But as you correctly pointed out, when the game began and when the national anthems were sung, these players clearly had discussed the situation and had planned collectively not to sing along with the anthem. And as you correctly pointed out, they also created a kind of a circle of unity they all need and expressed some sort of unity and solidarity in that way. For me, what's significant about their actions is that this was a collective action. And this was a collective decision based on some form of consensus amongst the 25 players. We have to assume that there were probably important differences of opinion, important differences of political views, or even approaches to political tactics amongst these players. We can't impose a single unified perspective on on 25 players who come from very different backgrounds, play their club soccer in many different countries around the world. They're not all based in Iran. So there must have been differences, but clearly they had discussed this and decided they were going to do this as a team. This is a departure from previous acts of dissent and solidarity by athletes over the past two months or over two months. We have seen numerous quite brave gestures, especially by women in these months, not only just expressing solidarity, but actively participating in the protest movement. So as people have probably seen in a number of cases, women athletes have removed their veil, their hijab in the realm of soccer or football in these past two months. Iranian soccer players in the domestic league have refused to celebrate when they've scored goals and have made other gestures on the soccer field, expressing their solidarity and their sympathy for the Iranian protesters. A number of the players, including players on the national team, have made public statements on social media. But what I want to underline here is that these gestures were largely individual kind of gestures. This was a collective gesture by 25 players, and they did it on the largest sports stage that we have, the World Cup, in a very important, much-viewed match between England and Iran. In that regard, this was a significant gesture, even if, from the perspective of some people, it wasn't enough or it was too late. Thousands of Iranian fans in the stadium shouted as the anthem rang out. Some jeered and others made thumbs down gestures. Among the spectators, 
some showed a clear support for the uprising, carrying signs that read, Women, Life, Freedom. That is the central slogan of the protest. Iran's state-run television censored these scenes, as well as footage of the players lining up and refusing to sing the anthem before the match. Football, as you know, is almost a national obsession in Iran, and the Iranian national squad had long been a source of national pride in Iran. But public opinion soured in the run-up to this World Cup. Across the country, we saw billboards of the national team being burned, and we have seen people taken to social media to support England, Iran's opponent in this match. There are also credible reports of people relishing England, thrashing the Iranian side. What caused this sea change in such a short span of time? Yes, I absolutely agree with you, Shadham, that there was a significant sea change in this last, uh, let's say, two weeks. From my sense, talking to friends and family in Iran and following social media, if you go back to September or early October, where we began to hear mutterings of expelling Iran from the World Cup and so forth. There wasn't much traction around this campaign, but there were some significant changes in these past two weeks where you got the sense that Iranians wanted and expected these players to make strong and more public statement of, of support for the protest movement. Now, when I say Iranians, we're talking about 85 million people. We're talking about a highly complex and diverse society. And I'm talking about a situation where it's partly because of the authoritarian nature of the regime, it's impossible to tell you what the quote unquote average Iranian or the majority of Iranians want or don't want and so forth. But there was clearly a shift towards an expectation that these football players will take a public stand. I think the reason that you got the sea change was both because of the kind of social media campaign around this issue, but also some, frankly, missteps by the Iranian players or pressure from the Iranian Football Federation. Most notably, the very public meeting between the players and President Ebrahim Raisi on the eve of their departure from Iran, where they were photographed meeting with President Raisi, smiling and so on and so forth. Plus this kind of photo shoot that was done with them laughing and giggling and seemingly having a wonderful time. This clearly rubbed many people the wrong way. When I mentioned the social media campaign, I want to just underline something. What the campaign was really pushing for was this notion that the national team, or what is known as Team Meli, is ultimately a team that represents the Islamic Republic, the political regime, and not Iran, the nation, and the people. And as I said, if you go back to September and October, this argument didn't have much sway. This was not an argument that had much popularity if you go back to, for instance, the 2018 World Cup or even the 1998 World Cup when Iran played in the World Cup in France and played the United States. And if you want to go even further back, in 1978, when Iran made it into its very first World Cup in Argentina, that was actually in the midst of the uprising and protest movement that led to the 1979 revolution. And as far as I have seen, there was never any real major campaign arguing that that Iranian national team was somehow representative of the monarchy, the Pahlavi regime, rather than the Iranian people. So what was being claimed these past few weeks was a radical departure from how most Iranians looked at the national team. So that what we saw both inside the stadium with supporters 
frankly, chanting some quite harsh chants against the players, describing them as having no honor and so on and so forth. This was quite shocking. And I suspect it probably took many of the players themselves by surprise. Orang, as you mentioned, uh, some Iranians in diaspora had called on FIFA, the football world's governing body, to expel Iran from the World Cup and suspend the Iranian Football Federation because of the regime's brutal crackdown on the protests. Some argued that Iran attending the World Cup is important for protesters back home as a high-profile event that offers opportunity for players and spectators to voice dissent. This was the counter-argument. FIFA obviously did not ban Iran, but that campaign seems to have played an important role in shaping the public opinion about Iran's national football team, as you just discussed. Can you talk about the forces behind this campaign? What was their message and what made it so effective? This campaign that on the one hand, you can say failed because Iran was not kicked out of the World Cup. But on the other hand, as I think you rightly point out, it's had a dramatic consequence in the way uh, both how Iranians have viewed this World Cup, have viewed this particular group of 25 players, but also I think impacted their performance or their ability to, to perform. But this was a group of Iranian activists around women's issues, around issues around sports, along with some lawyers, specifically some Spanish lawyers, made an appeal to FIFA to expel Iran from the World Cup. Specifically, they referenced the decision of FIFA to expel Russia from this year's World Cup as a good example. And they also referenced FIFA's decision, for instance, to boycott apartheid South Africa, but also in the 1992 World Cup, Yugoslavia and Serbia were also excluded from the World Cup. Now, this group of activists and their lawyers in early October made two specific claims. On the one hand, they argued that Iran was violating the basic principles of the FIFA charter by not allowing women to attend soccer stadiums and in general, not providing equal treatment and equal opportunities to women and men in sport. This is part of FIFA's charter. Despite some gestures that Iran had kind of relaxed some of the restrictions on women's entry into the stadium, there was still grounds to believe that they had not fully shifted their policies. The second claim this group was making is that Iran's football federation was not truly independent. And in fact, Iranian politicians and the state directly interfered in the running of the football federation and domestic and international football teams in Iran. And this also contravenes FIFA's principles. So they were making these two claims. And frankly, these are two, if you will, uh, legitimate good arguments that could be made. However, they were making these arguments very much at the 11th hour, a few weeks before the tournament was started. It seemed to be an attempt to take advantage of the political context in Iran to try to internationally marginalize and humiliate the Islamic Republic. I should add that in the midst of all this, some Ukrainians, including some Ukrainian football teams, jumped on this issue and made the argument that, well, Iran should be removed from the World Cup and instead their spot should be given to Ukraine that has clearly amassed great international support and sympathy. That also, I think, probably rubbed some people the wrong way. As I said, in these early weeks, there wasn't that much support inside Iran, as far as I can tell, around this issue. But because of those missteps that I previously mentioned, this sort of argument gained more and more traction and became a real lightning rod in the way Iranians uh, related to 
the World Cup. In October, they filed this case. It didn't have much traction. However, part of the reason you got this recent shift was, frankly, a very concerted and energetic campaign by activists outside of Iran, most notably Masi Alinejad. But here, I would like to include Iran International. Iran International is a Persian language network that is vociferously anti-regime and clearly has very strong connections to the Saudi Arabian government and receives significant amounts of funding from the Saudi government. Iran International relentlessly made this argument that the Iranian national team is in fact not a team representing the Iranian nation, but is a team representing the Islamic Republic and the political regime. From what I can gather, the role of these activists, and especially Iran International, is quite central in this recent shift in attitude that Iranians have adopted towards the Iranian football team and the World Cup. And in this sense, the campaign shifted from the kind of legal terrain towards a kind of a media public shaming. It's interesting to recall that the Iranian diaspora, the Iranians living abroad, have actually previously also turned to football as a way to delegitimize the Islamic Republic. Let me give you one example of this. May of this year, of 2022, the families of the victims of the shooting of the Ukrainian passenger plane in 2020 protested the initial decision of the Canadian Football Federation to hold a friendly match with Iran earlier this year. And Hamed Esmailoun and a number of the others publicly outspoken members of these families criticized the Canadian Football Federation and called on the Canadian government to cancel this friendly. And in fact, they were successful. It is interesting now to look back and see that this was targeting sports, targeting football as a way to critique the Islamic Republic actually seems to have been a strategy amongst some activists prior to the World Cup. As we are witnessing this tragic massacre committed by the regime against protesters, one may ask why we are discussing this issue of Iran's national football team. But I think there's a broader question here. Those behind the campaign of hatred towards the team argue that the team serves as an instrument for the government to garner legitimacy and paint itself as an accepted member of the international community. We know for a fact that there is at least one member of the team who is undoubtedly a regime loyalist, and there may be a couple of more members with similar positions. That said, it appears that the narrative presented by the campaign passed the judgment on the entire team before the team had a chance to show its solidarity with protesters during the tournament. When the footballers refused to sing the national anthem, that was still not considered enough to make up for their past mistakes, to change the mindset of those behind this campaign. What does that tell us about this section of the opposition in diaspora and their inability to welcome efforts by the people and groups who want to redeem themselves, if you like? It seems like their polity is based on a binary in which everyone has to be either pro-regime or anti-regime. There are no bystanders in their understanding of politics. I absolutely agree with you that this is indicative of this highly polarized political terrain that we're in. The reactions and struggle over the Iranian football team are indicative of a larger approach that some of the most vocal groups of Iranians outside of the country have taken in the past few weeks. Namely, they've sought to frame the struggle taking place in Iran around morality. 
they've examined and presented, I would say, the, the protests in Iran through the lens of moral outrage. Or they've tried to explain that what is happening in Iran is outrageous and it is a struggle between good and evil. Absolutely, certainly, there is a lot to be outraged by. There are many outrageous things happening. Arresting, abusing, and killing women for wearing what they want and demanding equal treatment before the law, at work, and in the public is outrageous. Confronting protesters with brutal violence day in and day out is appalling. We're talking about well over 400 deaths. Estimates are that around 50 to 60 children are included in those deaths. We're talking well over 15,000 arrests in this past eight to nine weeks. We're talking about basically a siege on Kurdistan for now two, three weeks. We're talking about several mass killings in the province of Baluchistan. These are all outrages. I think a certain amount of moral outrage is not bad. It helps people get engaged. It helps people become aware of what's happening in Iran. Both Iranians become aware, but also potential allies and supporters in other communities. But at some point, I think activists have to move beyond moral outrage to understand what really underlines these issues. The types of violence, the types of political violence that we're seeing is really the outcome of people demanding, asking for their rights and protesting when these rights have been denied to them by the Islamic Republic. That's what the issue is. And the violence that people have been experiencing is a byproduct of this pushback, this pushback by the regime, the inability of the regime to tolerate any form of dissent. What is needed, I would argue, is building political power and political organizations, not simply shaming people, as you pointed out, and dividing Iranians into the morally pure and the immoral. There's a lot harder work that needs to be done than simply turning to international forces, whether it's FIFA or foreign governments and so forth. But also, I want to point out, it's a lot better to do this hard work of organizing and creating dialogue and debate amongst Iranians than turning to international actors that have their own interests, their own commercial interests, and their own political interests. And part of what I take from this experience, where activists spent their limited time and energies trying to get Iran kicked out of the World Cup, and FIFA, in a sense, brushed them aside, is the realization that FIFA has its own massive commercial interests, and it's not going to jeopardize its crown jewel of the World Cup to engage in some form of solidarity with Iranians willy-nilly. But this larger point of how the Iranian diaspora engages with international organizations and international governments is a critical one. And we need to grapple with these political parties, governments, international organizations have their own agendas, have their own projects. And be aware of that and be careful not to get sucked into their orbit. And the only way to not get sucked into these alternative agendas is to develop one's own political project, have a sense of what one wants to develop with Iranians, for Iranians, and for a future Iran. Let me add that the Islamic Republic also prefers a situation in which politics is deeply polarized, because it allows the regime to turn to Iranians and tell them that if you don't support us, and if you don't support the security forces and so forth, what will potentially happen is Syria, a civil war, Iraq, a foreign invasion, Afghanistan, a foreign invasion. And a polarized situation allows the regime to tell Iranians 
the, the choice is between stability and order or mayhem, chaos, and uncertainty. Arang, let's talk about how things changed between Iran's first match against England and the second one against Wales. We should mention that the regime dispatched thousands of its supporters to Qatar for the second match to counter any attempt by Iranian fans who had shown their solidarity with anti-regime protests inside Iran during the first match. State funds were used to pay for thousands of its loyalists to attend the next two matches against Wales and the US at a price of roughly $6,000 per head. The price tag for this propaganda and intimidation tactic against dissidents was millions of dollars from public funds. What stands out for you in these changes and the reasons behind them? Yes, Sharon. In a sense, many of the issues we raised about the polarization of the political scene in Iran kind of played out just in these two World Cup games uh, between Iran and Wales and Iran and the United States. Iran's team was either presented as the team of the regime or the team of the people, a people that was assumed to be kind of unified, all in opposition to the regime. Kind of in this framework, if the team won, as they did against Wales, then this could be used as an example of a victory for the Islamic Republic and the, and the regime. And if the team lost, it could be defined as a defeat, a loss for the regime, with there being no kind of space for any complicated alternative scenario. And this played out quite literally when Iran defeated Wales in dramatic fashion. We saw that same evening in Tehran a number of images of security forces celebrating the victory, dancing in the streets, claiming this victory as a victory for the Islamic Republic, of their understanding of what Iran is and what Iran should be. And then a few days later, when the Iranian team lost to the United States and therefore didn't make it into the next round, you had the images of groups of Iranians in many different cities taking to the streets and actually celebrating the loss of the team, even chanting slogans in favor of the United States. And all of these things were kind of echoed and reverberated through social media with different posts, either supporting Iran's win or supporting the U.S.'s win and so on and so forth. And in the middle of all this, there's evidence that, as you pointed out, large numbers of supporters of the Iranian regime were flown out to Qatar. There's evidence that security forces threatened the players. We have a kind of a leaked uh, hacked sound audio tape suggesting uh, some of this. It seems like the, some of the players were threatened that if they continue not to sing the national anthem, which they had done in that first game, or if they made any other kind of gestures in support of the protests, they or even their family back in Iran would be harmed and so forth. So really sports was dissolved and disappeared in this polarized political situation. And on the other hand, people who are going to the stadiums in Qatar to watch these games, to support the team, or even to simply use this public space, this public event as a way to also express their support for the protesters, they came under enormous pressure as well. And in another hacked audio tape, we learn of close collaboration between the Iranian security apparatus as well as the Qatari government and even maybe possibly FIFA officials in which names of potential opposition figures and people were shared. 
and the Qataris seemingly collaborated and cooperated with identifying and blocking opposition forces or groups or personality from entering the stadium. Even people who simply were wearing T-shirts with uh, women, life, freedom written on it were targeted either by the Qatari security forces or these, as you mentioned, these Iranian fans who were paid by the government to turn up at the stadiums and so forth. You know, in one sense, this is entirely predictable. When we talk about Qatar, we're talking about a country that is very well equipped and very well versed in monitoring and regulating the movement of people. Just go ask migrant workers, go ask journalists in Qatar. So this is in some ways in keeping with that. And then finally, while all of these things were taking place on and off the soccer field in Qatar, all along, what seems to me is kind of gone lost is that tens, if not hundreds of Iranians were arrested, shot at, and in some cases were killed, especially in Baluchistan and Kurdistan, but all across the country. And in a sense, the World Cup and soccer displaced the weeks-long protest movement on the ground, and the attention was redirected and deflected away from, I would argue, the real struggles that people are engaged in. Orang, on November 29, 1997, Iranians were celebrating their national football team's qualification to the World Cup after a breathtaking match against Australia. At the time, the national team was viewed by many as a unifying factor for the country. But exactly 25 years later, on November 29, many Iranians celebrated their team's loss to the U.S., and subsequent exit from the World Cup. The loss prompted sense of jubilation on the streets across Iran, with people dancing and cheering and setting off fireworks in celebration. The state security forces responded violently. In Bandar Anzali, a Caspian seaport, they shot and killed Mehran Samak, a 27-year-old man. Iranian footballer Saeed Ezzatullahi identified Mehran Samak as a friend and a teammate when they played as children. It is ironic that after Iran lost the game to the U.S., the Daily Javan, affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guards, wrote, and this is a quote, the team had won the real game, the game of uniting people's hearts. That's the end of the quote. Arang, how do you see this shift from a symbol of unity to a clear division? You know, in some ways, when I look back on the events of the last couple of weeks, this politicization of the World Cup and of sport, what we see in this instance is that the opposition played into the hands of the regime in one critical fashion. The Islamic Republic for years, for decades, has used sports, uh, the success of sportsmen, of sportswomen, even these teams, as an indication of how the prosperity of Iran, uh, the unity of the Iranian nation, of the stature and the status of Iran on the international scene. So sport in Iran is political. There's no denying about it. In some respects, sports in many countries, almost all countries, takes on a nationalist color to it, a nationalist hue to it. Even my young children watching the World Cup these last few days pointed out to me that, wow, the American broadcasters are so supportive of the U.S. team. You know, everyone can see it. Unfortunately, in some ways, very nationalistic about sports, especially when it comes to, it comes to international sports. But we can ask, I think, a reasonable question, even if, if sports or soccer is political, does it have to be politicized? And does it have to be politicized in this zero-sum way that it was in these past few weeks? I didn't see many attempts 
of people trying to gain the sympathy of different people or support people from different sides. All we kind of heard throughout these two weeks is that you're either with the people or you're with the regime. You're either a part of the nation or you're a part of the enemy, as the regime likes to call it. You're either honorable or you're dishonorable. Basharaf, you're Bisharaf. Both the opposition and the regime played into this in this very binary sort of way where they were all, in a sense, looking for heroes for their own size. Heroes for the people, heroes for the nation, heroes for Islam, heroes for the Islamic Republic, what have you. But it was a sort of cultivating these sportsmen as heroes for one side or another. This is very different to go back to the events of 1998 when Iran first beat Australia to make it to the World Cup first time in many, many years. And then in the summer of 1998, when Iran first played the United States in the World Cup in France, where from what I recall and from what I saw, there was a genuine kind of joy that took people out into the streets where, yes, there was obviously national pride that Iran made it to the World Cup first and then later defeated the United States. But there was also a sense of kind of a national unity. Instead, what we've seen is this kind of attempt by the regime, by the state-run media, but also by the opposition to kind of impose a national unification and silence any form of dissidence and opposition and claim, claim the team, claim the sport as something that's for their political cause. This has been quite disconcerting to witness and to see. And one way to think about it is that sports is fun. It is important. It is political. But in this current moment, I would argue that it doesn't have to be politicized. There are actually more important things than the World Cup and the soccer team. And what got lost in all of this, what I was alluding to earlier, is the ongoing struggles of Iranians around many different issues, from women's rights to labor rights, to the rights of ethnic and religious minorities, to just the simple political and civil rights of all Iranians, were sidelined by emphasizing and privileging soccer over these other issues. So from sitting here in the United States from afar, it did seem to me the politicization of the World Cup actually undermined the ongoing political struggles taking place and the mobilizations taking place in Iran. Different media outlets have reported that the regime loyalists attacked anti-government supporters inside and outside the stadium on the day that Iran and the U.S. teams faced off in the World Cup. And it's clear that Qatari security guards were there only to help the Iranian regime supporters when there were scuffles between the two sides. In fact, a Danish reporter said he was detained by Qatari police after filming Iranians who were attacked by pro-government Iranians, as he calls them. He was released after being asked to delete his pictures, which he refused. Qatar's treatment of anti-regime Iranians is in sharp contrast with what we saw during the games that Tunisia and Morocco played, where the fans were allowed to raise large Palestinian flags. They were also allowed to chant in solidarity with Palestine. It is clear that there was coordination between the Iranian and the Qatari regimes to prevent any display of solidarity with the protests in Iran. And it's also clear that FIFA went along with it. Can you talk about this collusion and the reasons behind Qatar's support for the Iranian regime? 
What you're pointing to is that for weeks, months, even years now, Qatar is kind of hidden behind this mantra that we can't politicize the World Cup or sports. But of course, what they're talking about is a selective politicization. This is a political project hosting the World Cup, changing the status and the reputation of Qatar as a country is quite essential to this. And of course, there's commercial and corporate kind of relations and stuff that grow out of the World Cup. But as you point out, this is a authoritarian political system. And it makes calculations based on different strategies for maintaining control over power in Qatar, and but also projecting it regionally. For several years now, Qatar and Iran have developed close working relations. Part of this was driven by the fallout of the um, blockade that uh, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia imposed on Qatar, which kind of drove Qatar to establish good working relations with Iran, as well as Turkey, for instance. So part of it is that. Part of it is, of course, Qatar and Iran are neighbors. Qatar is a small country that shares major gas fields with Iran. So it has had to maintain a good working relationship with Iran and the Islamic Republic just to maintain its access to these gas fields. So these are kind of the background factors that have ensured Iranian officials have leverage and have a degree of collaboration and cooperation from the Qatari government. And we kind of, in a sense, saw it on full display these past few days. It's probably too soon to do this now, but when we reflect back on this World Cup, it will be actually to parse out exactly what is meant by the World Cup being political or being not political or being political. What you raised is the question of Palestinian sympathy, Palestinian solidarity actually being given space is an interesting one. I think it has surprised some people that there has been at least some leniency towards that and something we should maybe follow and see how it develops. To what extent can Palestinian sympathy be articulated in the stadiums or outside the stadiums? The other thing I think that has caught some people off guard a little bit is the large numbers of Saudi fans and Saudi officials, uh, members of the royal family, who have been in Doha these past couple of weeks for the games and so forth. And many gestures of brotherhood and collaboration between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. This is after basically having the two countries on the precipice of actual military conflict for several years with the blockade and so forth. So again, I think the importance to remember is that sports, like many other things, are political. And for us as analysts, we have to be aware of that and be able to parse that out. But then as people who want to change the world around us, we also have to ask ourselves, is it to our best interest to politicize the World Cup? To go back to your earlier comment, will it actually allow us to deal with the ongoing arrests and killings in Iran. And that's what I'm questioning. I'm not questioning that the World Cup is political or not, but I am questioning the tactic of politicizing the World Cup to such an extent that it sort of drowns out what I would argue are more important political questions facing Iranians today. For years, Qatar has been benefiting from the sanctions imposed on Iran and Iran's limited ability to extract natural gas from its huge reserves some of which are in fact shared with Qatar. It may sound cynical, but I think it's safe to say that any profound political transformation in Iran and a change in the status quo is probably not desirable for the Qatari regime. The biased reporting of the protests in Iran by Al Jazeera and other Qatari-owned media outlets only confirms this point. 
Is that your reading of the situation? I think that's accurate. And we and it's not just this past few weeks. If you take up, you know, think about it since the Arab uprisings of 2011, Qatar has been, and here we can think of Al Jazeera, on the one hand, has highlighted and lauded certain uprisings and protests and revolutions, Egypt, for instance, while others that may be closer, closer to home, whether it was Bahrain or whether it was the events in Iran these past few months, as you correctly point out, we see a very different tone. This is an authoritarian system that cherishes stability and cherishes the status quo, because it's the status quo that both maintains or allows them to reproduce their monarchical control and also maintains the stable flow of oil and gas and revenues and investments to and from the Arabian Peninsula and Persian Gulf region. So they're incredibly risk averse and they cherish stability. So whether it's protesters in Iran or protesters in stadiums, they pose a challenge to the status quo. And of course, on another level, the last thing Qataris or Saudis or Emiratis or Kuwaitis would want is for their own citizens to be inspired by protesters in other parts of the world, whether it's in Iran or in China or Iraq or what have you. So they have, in general, a visceral reaction against public protest movements, which could, in a sense, land on their own doorsteps. So it's not just that the Qataris want stability and they don't want protests in Iran or in the region, but to make a more precise point, Qatar benefits from a weakened, disorganized, economically incoherent Iran. And that's what Iran is now and it has been for several years, both because of its international isolation and its economic mismanagement and political turmoil. And so for, from the Qatari perspective, this sort of weakened Iran it allows it to maintain, if you will, dominance in the gas fields, uh, benefit financially from the situation. So Qatar has no interest in Iran, whether it's an Islamic Republic or another political regime, to become a more coherent polity. Oran Keshavarzian is an associate professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University. He spoke with Shahram Agamir. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. The anti-government protests in Iran have led to a brutal crackdown by security forces. According to the Norway-based Iran Human Rights Group, at least 460 people have been killed, including 60 children. More than 18,000 others are reported to have been arrested, and hundreds have been blinded by pellet guns. One of the regime's tactics in suppressing the protests includes the use of ambulances by the security forces to arrest and transport protesters. A recent New York Times investigation based on videos and interviews with witnesses show how security forces use ambulances to infiltrate protests and detain protesters. I spoke with former New York Times journalist and video producer Nilou Tabrizi about her investigation into how Iran's security forces use ambulances to suppress the protests. 
As far as I know, protesters in Iran share information with each other in order to keep each other safe. So one of my sources who attends protests almost daily in Tehran started sharing video clips from domestic telegram channels that were showing either ambulances parked outside protests or alleging that there was a police officer in the back of an ambulance to detain protesters. These clips were starting to be shared on social media. And it went from individuals film filming it to sending it to Telegram channels and it being disseminated that way. And that's also the same way I found out. My sources would send me links to different Telegram channels that were publishing these pieces of visual evidence. Your sources in Iran, so they alerted you first? That's right. I first heard about this incident probably mid-October mm -hmm. as I was finishing reporting um, on our story about the bloody crackdown in Zahedan in Sistan, Baluchistan province. And as I was finishing that reporting, one of my sources started alerting me to this phenomenon of, of ambulances being co-opted by security forces. And also, how secure are these communication channels between you and your sources in Iran? Do They're you know? as secure as possible. I mean, we use encrypted messaging apps, and I don't want to name them because I, oh, yeah. I know, you know, Iranian security officials are really the best at protest suppression and monitoring how people disseminate information. So that's one reason why I want to keep it safe. But we, we communicate on encrypted messaging apps. And we have different ways to keep each other safe and they're as safe as possible, but it's still a risk. You know, say if one of my sources was ever stopped at a protest, their phone was seized and they could see that they were speaking with a journalist based in the United States. I mean, that's a huge liability. So for the source, so, it, you know, people take a huge risk to speak with me. You spoke with a number of witnesses in Iran who saw people being taken away in ambulances. And we have also seen several social media posts specifically on Twitter and Instagram, showing people attacking these ambulances and setting them on fire. Tell us more about what you heard and what these posts show. So our eyewitness testimonies provided more evidence than the pieces of video that exist. And that's because what they're filming could put them at huge risk. If they're filming pieces of evidence that show either Basijis clearly in the back of an ambulance or other security forces co-opting them and they're found out. I mean, this is just incomprehensible risk for anyone filming this, this type of incident. So our eyewitnesses actually revealed more to us than the visuals did. And the visuals that we saw online more so served as a way to kind of confirm our eyewitness accounts. We spoke with protesters in the big cities in Tehran and in Rasht, and most of our eyewitnesses saw, you know, would be at protests themselves and would see the presence of ambulances. One of our eyewitnesses um, is a works at a restaurant in Tehran that's, you know, very close to some of the main universities like Tehran University. And this person would say that daily they would see ambulances there all the time. Um, they said that they saw with their own eyes security forces being rearranged in the back of the ambulance and kind of taken into the protest, almost like a Trojan horse type of movement. Other protesters talked about being at Sharif University early in the protests when students were organizing protests and security officials came to break up the protests. And while waiting and trying to leave the scene, they saw an ambulance come in, grab people and beat them and throw them in the back of an ambulance. And as well, Hossein Ronaki, who is a free speech activist in Iran, a high profile human rights activist, there was a video that was shared mid-September 
that he talks about, he gives a testimony to camera and says that I went to one of my interrogation sessions. And when he left at the parking lot, he noticed that there were plainclothes officers waiting near an ambulance to try to detain him. Um, And he was able to kind of floor the gas and leave the car park, but he even details that himself. Also, the use of ambulances, Nilu, for detaining protesters and suppressing uh, protests in Iran is nothing new. It happened in the 1980s and during the Green Movement in 2009. What has changed? Uh, What struck you when you were going through these videos? What struck me was being able to have tangible evidence beyond really crucial eyewitness testimony that really plainly showed the misuse of these ambulances. So when we found several examples of ambulances being parked outside police stations or just leaving or just exiting, and some police stations where there was no local hospital nearby, or when we saw a really clear example that we put in our story where protesters in Rash stopped an ambulance and there's a bit of a scuffle and outruns someone who appears to be in in the national police uniform of Iran. These concrete examples just solidify the stories. And you're right, this is nothing new. I mean, I spoke with uh, reporter friends of mine in Iran, and they mentioned seeing some of these ambulances in 2019 at protests. But the difference now is just having this piece of visual evidence. It's really easy for Iran's government to twist the narrative, but it's really hard to twist a narrative when you verified and geolocated these pieces of video that become central evidence. So you alluded to it a bit um, earlier, but your investigation is primarily based on analyzing these videos in addition to eyewitness testimonies um, you got from inside Iran. How did you authenticate these videos? I have very like baby geolocation skills, but I didn't do the bulk of the location work. So essentially a brief overview of of how to authenticate these videos or the process is to one, make sure that these videos are new, being able to search them online and seeing when they were first posted to confirm that these videos came from these current protests. That's the first step. And then the, you know, we watch all the videos carefully going frame by frame, making sure nothing is doctored. And once we feel confident about that, that's another check mark. And then the next step is to be able to locate the footage to give us a degree of certainty of exactly where it occurred. And then we also look for videos surrounding that. So one of our main videos of the ambulance being stopped and rushed, we also look to see, okay, well, that night, what is the whole picture of what was happening? Were there other protests that night? Were they anti-government protests? Was this perhaps a part of the protest? So it's, it's just being able to then look at the larger puzzle piece of you know where this one piece of video fits in throughout the night or throughout the week of the incident that we're looking at. As you write in your article, the use of... Um ambulances to detain people has outraged Iran's medical community. A video posted on Twitter on October 4th and verified by reporters at the Times shows medical workers demonstrating outside Razi University Hospital in Rash in northern part of Iran, holding the sign that read, Basijis are not student and ambulances should be used for transporting patients. Can you tell us more about the reaction by the medical community and hospital workers in Iran. Being able to find pieces of visual evidence showing how 
the medical community was responding was really key to our story too. It just allows us to to have another picture of, of what these discussions look like. So this protest was really important to us. We were able to verify that this was a current video. We were able to locate where it was. And we were also able to show the type of protests that they were holding. And, and, and this protest comes at a great risk to medical workers because they're really calling out the security apparatus by name. And this wasn't the only piece of video that we found. We found another video that was posted October 21st that showed a demonstration at the Mashhad Medical Society building. And a speaker is reading this manifesto and they say, they start talking about the use of ambulances and medical symbols by security forces. And they say, we'd like it to stop in order to gain social trust. And so we felt that that was also really important to highlight. And I spoke with doctors who were now in the U.S. but had either practiced or studied for a long time in Iran, and they have connections with the medical community still there. And they talk about how it's a main issue that they're trying to respond to as well. What are the consequences of the security forces using ambulances to detain protesters? Protesters in Iran have been afraid to go to hospital or call for an ambulance, of course. It increases the mistrust in the medical system. And also uniformed and undercover police have prowled the hospitals looking for patients with injuries connected to the protest. What did you hear from doctors and people you spoke with about how this has impacted people who are trying to uh, seek medical help, specifically people who've been injured? in the protests. So one of the people that I interviewed, who's a protester there, talked about how when their friends get hurt at protests, they don't go to the hospital. There's a, so now it's a complete understanding and it has been for a few years that you know the security apparatus can have access to your medical records, or as you said, they'll go to the hospital and wait for you. So now it's not safe for them to go to the hospital. Another protester told me about how if one of their friends gets hurt, they try to do you know, just an at home, trying to bring someone home and, and try to take care of them in their own home. But now pharmacies won't sell gauze and things like that. So it's the distrust of the system is very widespread. And I spoke with a doctor in the United States that has relationships with doctors in Iran and, and helps them either with telehealth or just to have relationships. And he mentioned that when he works with doctors in Iran to help their patients to get care, he says that what they do is uh, they send patients either to health centers in the middle of the night, or he tries to give some type of counsel from abroad, which just seems to be just complete chaos. I mean, and the thing that really stood out to me is I asked all of my witnesses, you know, is there any reason for someone to call an ambulance at the protest? And one of them said, there's no sane reason, like no sane Iranian would even do that. And for me, this quote really just drove it home. This person said, we felt most insecure when we saw police, but we have a new level of fear unlocked. Now we feel the worst pains when we see ambulances. And every time we're stuck in traffic, now the dilemma is what if there's a real patient in there or what if they're going to kill us? So you can just see the ability for doctors to provide care really hinges on the idea of impartiality and to do no harm. But unfortunately, that has been co-opted at, at several levels by Iran security forces. So it's now at a place where the people who want to get care are too afraid to and too afraid to connect with the medical system in all of these other ways. And the medical workers themselves in Iran are completely frustrated and are taking the risk to protest about this. Nilu, what is the bigger story here? Why did you want to look into this? Even though it is documented that this isn't the first time that ambulances have been co-opted by security forces, 
I just had a, a sinking feeling in my stomach when I saw some of these videos and to talk to people about how scared, scared they were about the medical system. I just, it just felt really important to highlight. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at, you know, local media to see, okay, well, what's the government's narrative? What are they trying to say about the story? The only thing they would write about was how ambulances were being attacked by protesters. And it's like, well, of course they're attacking them. They're now seen as this, as vehicles of oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to, you know, just frame the story really clearly to take the pieces of visual evidence and verify them and kind of put it on the public record, what was happening in Iran and to give eyewitnesses the space to express what it's like to protest where you don't even feel safe when you see an ambulance. Like all of these things felt really important and it's so hard to report on Iran. We're not there. Even if we were there, it'd be really difficult. And so these videos that we see on social media provide us these tiny windows um, into understanding what might be going on at the ground level. So I feel like anytime we have these windows, it's, it's really important to take it seriously and to take these small windows of opportunity and try to create the bigger story so our audience can understand, you know, what the stakes are for protesters in Iran. Not only are they being killed by live fire, but they're also being Trojan horsed by these ambulances. Nilu Tabrizi is a former New York Times journalist and video producer. The article she recently co-wrote with Ishan Javari is titled how Iran's security forces use ambulances to suppress protests. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio, or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <laughs> 